0: We're continuing this series on prayer, and the last time I preached, I specifically preached on the problem of the difference we experience between we know what the character of God is and our experiences of the problems of evil and suffering in the world, and I'm going to continue that today, but if you are in the midst of something like that, um, the sermon may not be quite as... Um, apropos for the situation, and I suggest you go back and listen to the other one. Not because it was so great, but I think it just addresses the, the situation slightly differently. I actually intended to preach this sermon last time, and the Spirit said, No, you have to preach this other one first. So this is where, this is where we are. Um, one, other, one other statement before we pray um, for those who don't know me, I like to open it up for questions at the end. So if you think of something along the way, you want to ask a question. That's actually my favorite part of the whole thing. So, let us pray. Lord, I just thank you so much that uh, we get together corporately together with you. Lord, I thank you so much that you sent your son for us to redeem us, to bring us back to what you intended us to be. And so, Lord, we um, we just glory in the fact that you are who you are and that your character is consistent and faithful and good. Amen. So I want to start out with a couple questions this morning. The first one um, is a little loaded. If God's will is already decreed, and he already knows what he wants, and he's going to get it anyway, then what sense does it make to ask him for things? This is the problem of petitionary prayer. And if we don't understand what's going on in Scripture, this question can make it feel like, what's the point of praying? So, do we pray to God to inform him? Do we pray to God to give him more power? Do we pray so that it makes... So that it makes God do good things in the world that he doesn't already want to do? No. All those questions are no, right? So let's come at this from a slightly different angle. Again, coming from the question of the experience we have with evil. Is the world the way that God wants it? No. So then the question becomes Does God have unmet wants or desires? Does he? This is important. Because if we answer no, then we've got a big problem. Because the answer is yes, he does. He has unmet wants and desires. Is the world the way God wants it? Does God have unmet wants or desires? Yes. If we answer no to that question, then we instantly get into the problem of then Genesis 3 and the sin is something God wanted. And now everything after it also is things God wanted and we start attributing bad things to God because we prayed and they didn't turn out the way we expected, and we start saying they were God's will. God has unmet wants and desires right now. Don't attribute bad things to him. His character is good and faithful. Why in the world do we expect that this is true? And the answer is because there is someone in the garden, with Adam and Eve that's also involved in the situation, right? The snake. And so there is a conflict that is started there that continues to work as we move through the Bible. Now, this conflict, I'm going to lay out some points that I want to sort of like, we'll build out as we go, but these are fundamental to what we're going to look at here. One, God is all-powerful. Two, spiritual evil... And just spiritual beings in general, are autonomous and can choose to be disobedient to their creator. They get choice, just like we do. Three, the conflict with spiritual evil cannot be a conflict of power because only God is all-powerful. Okay? So if there's a conflict, it can't be a conflict of power. So what's the conflict about? The conflict is about God's character. And if you're king or anyone else and you are trying to demonstrate your character and someone's accusing you of something, you can't beat them down as proof of your character. There are other ways you have to demonstrate it. And so God will demonstrate who He is and who His true character is. Number five, there are rules to this conflict. And finally, number six, God works with the heavenly host to rule. So we'll start in Ephesians 6 this morning. And this will be the sort of the proof text for where we're going to go. Starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers... Against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may build to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand for him. Stand therefore, having fast, fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's our proof text for this morning. Now, I find this useful to think about it like this. If you were going to learn a game, and you wanted to learn this game, and there were no written rules down to how to learn the game, one of the best ways you could learn is to watch other people play. Makes sense. Now, if you were trying to watch this game and someone's play, there's people playing, and you only get to see sneak peeks of what's going on. So the game goes, and then all of a sudden it's covered up, and you don't get to know what's going on. And then every once in a while it's revealed again, and you're like, ah, I think maybe, and then it gets covered again. So you get to keep seeing those peaks of what's going on in the game. This is very much like the way the Bible shows us supernatural warfare. We get to see peaks of what's going on in the conflict, and then the, sh- the, the sheet is lowered again. And we're going, OK, maybe? I think I picked up something there. So in the same way, we're going to sort of look at it this way, which is here's the game, peak, and then it's going to get covered again. We're trying to pick out, figure out, how does this game play? How does it work? How does this conflict work, and what's our role in it? So a great place to start, always, is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the snake comes to Eve, and the thing he states is that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. So what's at the heart of what he's insinuating? He's holding something back. God's character is at question. Do we trust God's character enough to trust what he's doing? Or will we not? And so Eve doesn't. And Eve takes the thing and she shouldn't. The timing is wrong. And so the character of God is is what is at question that is being brought forward. Will humanity trust God God and therefore image out the true nature of character of God or not? Is that what's going to happen? So there was our first sort of peak. There's character going on. There's a question of that. There's also these weird character going on with snake. As it go- builds on, we're going to obviously see that, that that being is a supernatural a- element that is going on in the world and that we're interacting with that in some, sa- some sense, The next one that we get is, instead of sort of like uh, a peeling back of what the game is, the game actually moves into into another spot we didn't expect. And so all of a sudden, here we are. Abraham is sitting, and he sees two angels and the angel of the Lord coming. So now all of a sudden, the game has moved. And it's now in a different place we expected it to. Here's the game going on. And so God comes. And he talks with Abram, and he sends the two angels on to Sodom and Gomorrah. So now there are more characters going on, and it is not just God who's functioning, but he's also allowing other characters to work and operate in his stead. So we picked up a little bit more of the rules of the game. There is something going on, and God is not the only sole uh, person or individual that is part of this conflict. And there are in, or there are beings that are both for and against God, and both sides are going on. Going on, and the game doesn't stay in just one realm. Now all of a sudden, there's overlap. So no, I'm going to go to Job next, but before I do that, because I love Leviticus so much, I have to at least once mention Leviticus. Leviticus is by by just the way it works, it is embodied theology. And so as we're moving through, we would notice, for instance, that the cosmic conflict that I'm talking about isn't explicitly stated. But the way God lays out the whole structure of the thing is that as you move outside of the camp, you move into the realm of sin and death. And as you move closer into the camp, you move into life and, lit, and, and good things. So as you move out there, away from God, you are, you're moving into something else. You choose. You choose. Whose camp will you be in? What is that, what's going on with that? And so there, you know, the idea is, is you know, the whole land of Israel then becomes the spot where God's presence is and outside is a realm of sin and death, which is why like David, David's praying and he goes, you know, when he's in with the Philistines, he's going, I can't pray to you in the same way because there's something about the way that that's going on. So there's something about the theology that's being set up. And so that's my... My little love of Leviticus, sorry. Moving on. Job. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put, not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on that very side? You have blessed the works of his hand and his possessions have increased you the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here again, we get a little peek of what's going on. And in this case, we get to see some dialogue going on. We get a question again of what is... Oh, sorry, here, look. I'll tip it some. I know the game's hard to see, and it's going to slide on me, but... Oh, well. I, I was tempted to make it move as we go, but never mind. So here we go, and we see that the conflict is now has rules. Because Satan says, you won't let me do things to him. And so God says, fair enough. Here's the rules. I'm going to adjust them slightly. And now there's another step that you can do. So there are things that have, there are rules, and clearly everyone is somehow aware of them, but we've never been told what those rules are. But they're going on. Job 2, 1 through 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So the rules are continuing to be slightly adjusted in this case. Job is still not aware of any of it. He's completely oblivious to what's going on. He doesn't get to know. Even by the end of it, he isn't told. He's completely out of the loop he just knows something's changed and all of a sudden things aren't what they match up to but again we get to see this this it's still a conflict of god's character will humans serve god only because of blessing or will they serve them him anyway because of who they know he is and that's part of the question of what job puts forward to us so again we get to see this peak and look at what's going on. So one of the ways I find useful to think about this um, is to imagine that this cosmic conflict is like uh, a baking show, which may seem a little strange. So it's like a cosmic baking show. If you've watched one of these baking shows, as they're going, the contestants will often be given a, uh, a set of ingredients and said, make this thing. And sometimes there's a very, you know, unique ingredient they have to include in it. There are rules and constraints of exactly how they're going to make the thing, but then they get to be creative with that. And so in the same way, every time God covenants with people, he instantly puts certain boundaries and limitations on himself. That's just the way he, he operates, it's not because he couldn't choose to ignore them. Because of his very character, he will not make those statements and then go against them. He chooses to work within those bounds, and yet he still can't be constrained, right? So here we are. We now have a, another way to think of this as a cosmic baking show. I know that's, you're going to remember that for the rest of your life. Consider, for instance, 1 Kings 22, 19 to 23. This is King Ahab, right? He has been done so many bad things that God is bringing judgment on him. And this King Ahab and another king are going to go to war. And this other king says to to Ahab, you know, all of your prophets keep saying the same thing. We're going to go out. We're going to be super successful. Do you have anybody else? And Ahab says, there's this one guy, but every time I bring him in, all he tells me are bad things. He only tells me bad things. I don't want to bring him in. And and so the other king's like, bring him in anyway. So Micaiah comes in and he tells him, oh man, you're going to be great. You're going to be successful. And Ahab's like, I don't believe you. Micaiah's like, fine, I'll tell you the truth. 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of ha- heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said another thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these of your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So a couple of things we can start to draw from this. One, multiple spirits speak out. Only God accepts one of the proposals, which means that there is something about, just because a supernatural being is a supernatural being doesn't mean that they're always right. Okay, God chooses one and says, that one works. The other one's not so much. Nothing super surprising about that. Two, he sends a spirit to lie through the prophets, which would start to raise questions about God's character. But if you look at what he does, he both allows that, and then he sends somebody on the other side and says, do you see this? This is what's happening. Which one will you choose? Will you listen to the lies, or will you listen to the truth? And God continues to demonstrate his character, even as you could almost look at it as he's playing both sides. No, no, he's not. But, you know, do you understand? You see what I'm saying? That, like, that God's character is never in question. He is constantly demonstrating who he is. Daniel 4, 13 to 17 I saw in the vision of my head, and as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's now telling this dream to Daniel. I saw in the vision of my head, and as I lay down, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, "'Chuck down the tree, and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit.'" Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. On that end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets so over it the lowliest of men. So here we get to see these watchers, these holy ones, making this proclamation. Daniel later on goes, as he's interpreting it, makes it clear that this proclamation, though stated by these watchers, these holy ones, are still from the Most High God. So God continues to not just work solely through just his actions, but allows others to rule with him, to function with him. This group-oriented approach is just a consistent theme as we go through. God is not just solely running the creation by himself, but he is working with others. So this, this theme, this idea of working with others, of not just God, but the fact that there are others there that he is working with, Begins to be start, started to teased out even more in the Psalms. For instance, Psalms eighty nine six through eight, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? So here he is in the council of the holy ones. Those watcher, that holy one, he is in this courtroom scene where he is king, he is judge, and there are others who are operating as his court with him. Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Job 15, verse 8. This is, this is when Job's friends are questioning Job's claims that he's innocent. And Job is very, like the book of Job is very clear. Job's innocent. He's not done anything to bring this on himself. But his friends are very sure that he's wrong about that. And so at one point, one of his friends says, have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? He's like, are you seated up here in this this council?" And the answer is no, because Job never gets to see these council room scenes going on. But we do. We get to see peaks, flashes. What's going on? We get to have this game exposed a little bit. What's going on? How's it working? Daniel seven, nine through ten. And this is this is again this this big vision. Daniel is seeing these beasts that have come up out of the waters. And so this is after this fact. And it says, And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. get to see this constant theme of God and his counsel, his court, sitting in judgment and operating in such a way that it's not just God who's operating this way by himself, just solely, but there are others who work with him. A quote from Michael Heiser on this. What does God need with a council? This is an obvious question. Its answer is just as obvious. God doesn't need a counsel, but it's scripturally clear that he has one. The question is similar to another one. What does God need with people? The answer is the same. God doesn't need people, but he uses them. God is not dependent on humans for his plans. God doesn't need us for evangelism. He could save all the people he wanted to by merely thinking about it. God could terminate evil in the blink of an eye and bring human history to the end he desires at any moment. But he doesn't. Instead, he works for his plan for all things on earth by using human beings. God limits himself and works through both his heavenly host— And through his image bearers. And in both cases, they can choose to either be what they were intended or to be less than they were intended. While God is ultimately sovereign, he chooses to rule with others. Now, at this point, we've seen lots of characters who are in the scenes. The question may be how does humanity play into all of this? And the answer is, if we really think about what a prophet is, we start to get a better grasp of this. Prophets are often sort of described as nothing more than a messenger bringing something that God has communicated. But that misses the much deeper function of what a prophet is. If you consider the very first person, as you're reading through the Bible, who is called a prophet, it's Abraham. And this is the story of Abimelech and he takes Sarah from Abraham, and and Abimelech gets a vision from God, and God says, you're going to die unless you have Abram pray. And so he says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return him, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. He is a prophet. If we don't keep track of the story of Abraham as to where this occurs, then he's a prophet. Huh, no big deal. But if we keep track of the fact that this happens right after we see this very same situation with Sodom and Gomorrah and God talks with Abram and he tells him, am I going to hold anything back from you? No, I'm going to tell you what's going on. So he tells him and Abraham doesn't just sit back. He starts to talk with God and converse and say, what about this? Could we, you know, these type of things. So prophets are not just someone who, who just receives a message and passes it on. Prophets are people who are invited in to know things deeper, to be invited into the council. And if you think about any of the other prophets as you're going forward, Moses, how many times does he go and meet with God in crazy ways? Isaiah has the vision in the temple where he thinks he's going to die because he knows he's where he's not where he's supposed to be. Uh, Micaiah, again, sees a very similar type of vision. Ezekiel Zechariah has the vision where he's, he sees Joshua the high priest standing in this, this, in this council and he's dressed poorly and he's, he's saying, dress him right. Bring him up to what we know the high priest is supposed to look like. The prophets are not just people who pass on a message. They are people who are invited into God's council. Amos, the same thing, seems very similar to, to, to Abraham. He starts negotiating with God. He starts having this, you know, God says, here's what's going to happen to Israel. And Amos is like, Lord, it's too much. And God says, okay. And so they start to have this dialogue back and forth. These prophets are not just something that just gets, every once in a while gets a message, hey, here, here, here you go. No, they're invited into something much more. So we have this this confidence that we see some humans who have matured so much, they are imaging out God faithfully, and yet not fully, right? And so we get to see this these prophets who are flashes of what we hope humanity will be. And so then, then if we continue on in Daniel 7, a lot of this starts to come even more clear. Verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So here comes this one, like a son of man, riding on the clouds. Now every other time someone's been riding on the clouds, it's God. And so we're like, whoa, hold up for a second. There's some guy who's riding on the clouds and he seems like a God character and he sits down and starts, he starts ruling. He's given dominion. And then if we keep on into 18 and 19 of the same chapter, but the saints of the Most High shall reserve, receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So if we're here at this point, we now have a human figure who has so broken, what we or surprised us into what these characters are. Now we have one who's like this and now we have a promise that the saints of the Most High are going to rule with him. We're wondering who are these saints of the Most High? And so we continue on to Matthew 26, 63 to 65. And Jesus is standing now in front of the high priest on trial before the crucifixion. And he says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is utterly blasphemed. What further witness do we need? You now have heard his blasphemy. Do you see it? Jesus just claimed to be the one who's riding on the clouds to take dominion and authority and rule. The priest should lose his mind if he doesn't know who Jesus is. And he does. He, he's like, This is blasphemy. But then we get the confidence as we go, see, go forward. Jesus is vindicated for who he says he is. He is that son of man. And so we come back to the uh, cosmic baking show analogy. Is that the next slide? Yeah. My, my daughter's like a, a movie called Grace Stirs Up Success. And it's a, a movie about where this girl and little uh, young girl enters a baking competition and multiple different rounds of the competition. The final round, she's told to make a dessert. They have a nice table with special ingredients. You can pick any one of them, but you have to pick one of them from the table and use it. She stands there for a while looking, trying to decide which ingredient to use, and finally picks the decorative flowers, not one of the ingredients, but one of the decorative flowers, which are edible, to make her, and her dessert. And the judges are all flabbergasted because that was, she she didn't break the rules. She did choose something from the table. It just wasn't what what was expected. In the same way, Jesus, with God, right? Here he is, constrained, and he uses the very weapon that supernatural evil uses, right? Death. He uses that very weapon against them to defeat them. He bakes the best dessert with the unexpected ingredient. And so the Cosmic Conflict Baking show is (laughs) won. There you go. I'm sorry. (laughs) So here we are. This is what's, you know, Jesus has conquered death. Or, you know, and then he's set these things in place. Evil is defeated. And yet here we stand, still in this conflict between we know that that's true and where we are today. And so as we move through the New Testament, it begins to answer the question, who is this, these saints of the Most High? And it answers that question in a variety of different ways. As we've been reading through these different passages, we've gotten different titles. Sons of God, Holy Ones. These titles are titles that then start to be used in the New Testament. Jesus answering the question of talking about the resurrection says, those who are sons of the resurrection, are sons of God. Often, I feel like when we talk about sons of God, the way we often use it in the church, it ends up being becoming the uh, politically incorrect way of saying children of God. But if we pay attention to the Old Testament and the titles that are going on there, all of a sudden we go, no, that's not, it, it's not about being politically incorrect. It's about recognizing what the titles are. You are sons of God. You have been invited into this council. Paul makes it clear in Romans 8, those who have the spirit inside of them are sons of God. Galatians three twenty-five and 26, for now that faith has come, we, no longer, we are no longer under guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God is a constant mantra. You are sons of God. Another one that we often gets lost, I think, in translation here is we are called saints. For instance, Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That word saints literally means holy ones. For instance, in Jude 1.14, exactly the same word, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, behold, the holy ones The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. That holy ones is exactly the same word used in Ephesians 1. They're constantly making the claim as you move through the New Testament that you, you are one of the prophets, you are seated in the council, you have been invited in to this unseen discussion. And if you walk with the Spirit, you are part of that. If you want to get good at this game and you don't know the rules, who better than have the master who knows all the rules teaching them to you? You walk by the Spirit, the box is removed. You may not always know all the rules, but you can ask who the rules are from. How does this game play? The Spirit tells you. Now, All of a sudden, all of Ephesians starts to start to click together and lock in. Very beginning of Ephesians, we start being called saints. We're told Jesus is seated in heavenly places. Ephesians two four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive through Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We've been seated in heavenly places. This isn't one of those stadium things where you're like, man, I really hope I'm close enough to the bathrooms and the seats are comfortable. That misses the point. You've been seated in heavenly places, not as an observer, but as an active participant in this conflict. If you don't know the rules, the rules are open to you through the Spirit. He can teach you and guide you how to function. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. To me, Though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made to know the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So here are these rulers and authorities. And we're to teach, we're to demonstrate what is this manifest wisdom. And then if we come back to Ephesians 6, all of a sudden again, we start to see this thread of heavenly places. We're now seated in heavenly places And all of a sudden when we're being told, finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when you pray, you're not praying as someone who has no authority. You are brought into this council, you have been invited to be part of the conflict, and if you don't know the rules, you're able to find them out and be able to function and operate fully and truly as what you are, sons of God and saints. So to go back to the questions at the beginning... If God's will is already decreed and he already knows what he asks, what he wants, and he is going to get it anyway, then what sense does it make to ask him for things? Because God joins himself to us. And he rules and reigns, not by himself, but through us. With us, he functions and operates. He has invited us into that. God doesn't need us us in any way, but he wants us. He wants that relationship, and he wants to rule and reign with us. No, we don't pray to inform God. No, we don't pray to give God power. No, we do not pray so that it makes God do good things in the world that he doesn't already want to do. Is the world the way God wants it? Absolutely not. Does God have unmet wants or desires? Yes. And as humanity, as those who are sons of God, continue to join more into who he's called us to be, that will become less and less true.